Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Heritage Events Live, the Second Amendment Strikes Back. We're thrilled to have you here. Here are some tips for making the most of your virtual experience with us. Please submit questions through the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation. We love to know who's joining us. You'll see a handout in the handouts tab. Download this as it contains great information and resources about the Second Amendment. If there are any minor technical issues, we ask for your patience, as many of us are working from home and using home internet. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the program. The Constitution of the United States of America has endured for over two centuries. It remains the object of reverence for nearly all Americans and an object of admiration by peoples around the world. Not only is it the world's oldest national constitution still in use, it is also the shortest constitution, and therein lies its brilliance. Rather than concoct a detailed recipe covering every possible eventuality, the founders instead provided a structure and articulated a set of stable principles that provide a timeless guide for good governance that is enduring and worth preserving. This fall will mark the 11th year the Heritage Foundation has hosted our Preserve the Constitution series. By informing citizens on topics related to the Constitution and the rule of law, this annual lecture series seeks to restore the courts to their proper constitutional role and to enforce constitutional limits on government. Live events throughout September, October, and November will bring together leading voices in law and policy to give a reasoned defense for liberty. Previous events have not shied away from the big legal issues of the day, debating topics ranging from the state of the free press to the rise of the surveillance state, to attacks on religious liberty. Past speakers have included some of the nation's most respected judges and legal scholars, including Justices Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh, former attorneys general Michael Mukasey, John Ashcroft, and Ed Meese, and a number of senators and congressmen. We at Heritage feel it is very important for the citizenry to have an understanding of and allegiance to the Constitution of the United States. We are pleased that you are able to join us for our event today and what promises to be an engaging discussion. Following the program, we hope you will visit our website, heritage.org PTC2020, to sign up for and view additional events in our series. And now, we turn it over to our Heritage colleague to begin today's live program. I'd like to now invite Amy Swear, Legal Fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies to come on screen. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Amy Swear, and I'm a Legal Fellow here in the Heritage Foundation's Ed Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. On behalf of the Heritage Foundation and myself, I wanna thank you all for taking part of your day to join us for what I anticipate will be a fascinating discussion on what is shaping up to be one of the most unique years in the history of the right to keep and bear arms. With us today, Stephen is a staff writer at the Washington Free Beacon, where he covers all things related to the Second Amendment. As a journalist, he has been at the forefront of, and I would argue, has been one of the best at capturing this year's growth in gun ownership, the barriers faced by these gun owners, and the changing demographics of gun ownership. Stephen is also a certified NRA firearms instructor. Joining us also is Geneva Solomon, who is a director of the California chapter of the National African American Gun Association. Along with her husband, Jonathan, Geneva owns and operates Redstone Firearms in Burbank, California, the very heart of gun control country. She is also a certified firearms instructor focused on teaching shooting skills and self-defense to black gun owners. And finally, we have Jacob Hubert. Jacob is a senior attorney at the Goldwater Institute, one of the nation's premier liberty-focused public policy research and litigation centers. Importantly, he is also leading a Second Amendment fight against the state of Illinois over its significant and often months long delays in processing firearms owners identification cards. Fittingly, Jacob received his law degree from the University of Chicago School of Law and prior to joining Goldwater was the director of litigation for the Liberty Justice Center in Chicago. I'd also like to quickly again note that if you'd like to learn more about these panelists and what they're writing, doing or saying about the second amendment, please, please, please check out our handout which I believe is being sent around as a PDF link. 
So Stephen, without further ado, let's turn to you. What is our broad overview of what's going on across the nation? Yeah, well, 2020 has certainly been a momentous year for uh, the gun owning population of America. Uh, it's grown quite a lot over the last several months here, especially since the onset of uh, the coronavirus pandemic and uh, as well as uh, civil unrest that we've seen um, in recent months. Uh, this month, we got news from the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is uh, the industry's trade group uh, and tracks gun sales in the United States, um, that there have been uh, 18.7 million gun sales thus far in 2020. That's more than all of last year and is also a record pace for all time. Uh, March was the all-time uh, leading month, March 2020, for gun sales in the United States. Um, and June uh, was second right behind it, which is very unusual um, because gun sales tend to be seasonal, uh, kind of like Christmas tree sales or something like that, where um, as you get into the warmer months, um, sales tend to go down and then they go back up uh, around Christmas time and, and hunting season in the fall um, and, and uh, in March when there's new products come out uh, from the industry. But uh, June is usually a very uh, slow month uh, for gun sales, but this year it was quite the opposite. Um, and seasonally adjusted was actually a higher increase in June than even in March, um, even though March was the all-time greatest selling month for guns in history. Um, so we've seen quite a dramatic increase in um, gun sales, but also in gun ownership from what we can tell. Um, the National Shooting Sports Foundation surveyed uh, a number of their uh, dealers, a number of the, the gun stores throughout the United States. and. Uh, determined that 40% of the sales that they made in um, the first several months of this year uh, at the height of, of the uh, pandemic and, and uh, the, the unrest we've seen, that 40% of those sales were to new buyers, first-time buyers, um, which means uh, if that trend is kept up, there's something like seven and a half million new gun owners. Um, now, you know, that might have tailed off a little bit uh, in the last few months here, but um, if if 40% of that, you know, 18.7 million uh, were new buyers or sales to new buyers, then that's that's seven and a half million new gun owners, which obviously means quite a lot uh, going forward when, when you talk about gun policy in the United States um, and, and how those voters, those, those owners could affect uh, elections and perhaps become gun voters, um, which is something that I have personally seen or personally uh, witnessed with uh, a number of people uh, that I spoke with earlier this year um, about why they became new gun owners and how it's affected them politically. Um, certainly a number of them, a significant percentage did change their minds, um, at least on gun control policies it's, um, and could certainly have an effect on future elections or perhaps even this one um, in a few weeks here. So it, it's a pretty huge um, sea change, I think, um, and one that is certain to have a long-term impact on, on the country. Thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, Geneva, we're gonna turn to you. So we've just heard a broad national overview, uh, but what have you been experiencing specifically at your shop this year on the ground in California? And how has that sort of matched up with what's happening across the nation? So with California being one of the most gun restrictive states out there, um, and we've seen an uptick that started mid-March in gun sales um, when the shutdown in California happened. Um, literally, we blinked and we had a line um, outside of our store that ranged to about four hours um, just to get inside the store. At that time, the conversation was from the new gun owners who knew nothing about what the process looked like. And so we had new gun owners thinking that they could walk right into the gun store and leave out with a gun the same day. We had people who thought they could pay extra money to bypass or to to fast, you know, fast track themselves through the background check. 
Um, and, you know, just to give some history on what we've done here as a company, you know, at Redstone Firearms is we've always approach farm ownership from an educational perspective. So we've always went out into the communities and educated, you know, people within our community. This is what the process looks like. Although the news may tell you, or you may read articles that say, hey, it's as, as easy as buying a gun from a vending machine, that's not necessarily the truth. And so we started to see, just like um, to, to piggyback off of what Steven said, we started to see a lot of those new gun owners say, wait a minute, what do you mean I can't buy this? What do you mean California has a micro stamping law and I can't buy what my mom has in Georgia? What do you mean I can't pay you an extra hundred bucks to speed this up? And we were talking at the right, the heart of the shutdown where people are afraid of, you know, what may happen, police not being able to protect them. And so fear really started to play a role. And that was our opportunity at that point to educate and say, well, let's take a look at what has been voted into law. Um, you know, people who have been gun owners for five years walked into a gun store and found out they couldn't pass a background check, which isn't essentially a background check. It's an eligibility check for ammo. And so they were like, well, yeah, I voted that into law, but I didn't know that's what that meant, that I had to update my address. And so we've had to dispel a lot of mistruths um, and do a lot of education, which has led to longer wait times here at Redstone. But again, that's what we're here for. Thank you so much, Geneva. And finally, Jacob, let's turn to you. So what's going on in the litigation world, specifically uh, what's going on in Chicago and in Illinois? Because uh, I think your case really hits at the heart of some of these uh, more glaring national issues. Yeah, in Illinois, you have to get a license called a FOID card from the Illinois State Police before you can possess any kind of firearm at all, a rifle, a shotgun, anything. And that's not just to buy a firearm or carry a firearm or use a firearm. You need the license before you can possess a firearm in any sense whatsoever. If you don't have the license and you possess a firearm, you are committing a crime in Illinois. And that may sound bad, but in fact, it's even worse than that because the state of Illinois takes a very broad view of what counts as possessing a firearm. Illinois says you possess a firearm if you have access to it at all. So suppose you have a married couple in Illinois and the husband applies for a FOID card and goes out and gets a rifle and brings it home and puts it somewhere. Well, the wife could theoretically access that firearm. So the state of Illinois would say she needs to have a FOID card too, or she's committing a crime, even if she never touches the gun and has no intention of ever using it. This is an extraordinary restriction on Second Amendment rights. Only one other state, Massachusetts, requires people to get a license from their state before they can possess a firearm at all. Illinois law does say that when someone applies for a FOID card, the state police have to issue it within 30 days, unless the person's legally disqualified because of something like criminal history or a history of mental illness. Unfortunately, Illinois State Police typically do not issue people's cards within 30 days. Instead, they commonly take 60 days, 90 days, or even longer. And that's been true for many years. In 2013, the state admitted publicly that it was taking it uh, 64 days on average to give people their FOIA cards. And since then, the problem's gotten worse, especially this year with widespread looting and violence uh, on top of the uh, coronavirus uh, lockdowns, the demand for firearms and FOID cards has skyrocketed. On June 2nd alone, just after the looting began, the state received almost 5,000 FOID card applications on one day. And in the month of June, it received a total of 62,000 FOID card applications, all presumably from people who had not owned a gun before, at least not in this state. And so all these people are waiting for months and months on end, completely unable to exercise their right to defend themselves. And for some, of course, that could be a matter of life or death. If you have faced an imminent threat, you can't afford to wait 30 days, let alone 60 or 90. Uh, I live in Chicago and I applied for a FOID card earlier this year. And after I'd waited for a couple of months, I had to wonder, hasn't anybody ever sued over these delays before? I mean, it's been going on for so long and it's so outrageous. You'd think someone had done it. I suppose somebody did do it and, and the courts just didn't do anything about it. But it turned out, no, nobody had sued over this. And so I got in touch with some lawyers associated with the Illinois State Rifle Association and the Second Amendment Foundation. And we have filed a federal lawsuit uh, on behalf of 
Illinois residents who are waiting for their FOID cards. Well, thank you so much, uh, all three of you, for your opening remarks. Uh, I, Stephen, I, I want to turn back to you with some questions uh, to start off with, and, and also Geneva and, and uh, Jacob, if, if you'd like to jump in, uh, by all means. So we've heard a lot about some of the quote-unquote normal barriers to exercising Second Amendment rights. Uh, Geneva, you talked about in, in California, you know, people not understanding the, the weight periods. Uh, Jacob, your entire case is, is about some of these quote-unquote normal impositions. Uh, but what are we also seeing this year um, from would-be gun owners across the nation in terms of additional barriers being imposed because of coronavirus. So what are some of these complications? What's being done to challenge them? And, and perhaps just as importantly, how long can we expect these sorts of uh, coronavirus complications to keep impacting the Second Amendment? Yeah, I mean, there there were quite a lot of significant hurdles uh, that came along with the coronavirus shutdowns um, that did affect uh, gun buyers and people seeking gun carry permits all throughout the country um, from coast to coast, really. Uh, you, know, you know, obviously those shutdowns affected basically every part of society, but um, it was there was a particularly strong effect uh, when it came to, to gun buying um, because you had a lot of uh, the, the offices, the government offices that process these uh, sorts of permits, especially in, in deeper blue areas like California and, and Illinois or or uh, New Jersey, where they require these extra steps to purchase a gun, you know, uh, where the state has has a whole other process that you have to uh, go through in order to purchase a gun um, that might, you know, you might have not have the same sort of uh, effects in, in, you know, Pennsylvania or Virginia or a number of other states that don't have additional state level processes for gun purchasing. Um, but you saw shutdowns of those those offices in places like California and New Jersey really drug out how long it took people to buy guns um, at the peak of the uh, the shutdowns um, back in March, especially. Um, you know, I had one uh, one source in California, Scott Kane. He's a 38 year old. You know, he was. Um, pushed to buy a gun by his concern over, um, you know, unrest that might come after the shutdowns. Um, also his, his family is of Asian descent and they were being, they experienced some harassment. Um, and you know, he was uncomfortable with that. And so he wanted to buy a gun. It took him a month in California because, uh, you know, beyond the 10 day waiting period that they have for purchases, there was also huge backlogs in, the uh, state agencies that process those sales um, and the additional checks that California makes residents go through. And, and then uh, there were gun store shutdowns for a long period of time in California, parts of California as well. Um, and in you know, the entire state of New Jersey for a long time, um, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, you know, there were a number of states that had shutdowns of actual gun stores as well um, until the Trump administration to, uh, you know, put out a guidance that said gun stores should be included in essential businesses. Um, but even today, um, you know, a lot of those things got uh, cleared up uh, through legal challenges, um, like in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. But um, even today, there's still lingering effects of, of coronavirus uh, precautions in places like D.C. and, and uh, Philadelphia, uh, especially. You know, D.C. had a whole issue with uh, there's no gun stores in the city, so if you want to buy a handgun, you have to buy it out, outside of the city and then transfer it back legally through an FFL there. But there was only one FFL, and he closed down his business at the beginning of March. And so the city had to scramble to come up with a solution, which was to make the police department the uh, an FFL, which is a very unique legal situation that may cause problems uh, down the line, but has already caused problems with huge backlogs in processing uh, those transfers. So if you want to buy a handgun in DC right now, it takes, it can take several months still. Um, and, you know, they've improved the process, but it's still, they're still having a lot of issues. And Philadelphia is similarly with uh, their gun carry permit uh, process. You know, they, the law there says, just like in Chicago, as, as we discussed, there's a similar law that, at the state level that says you have to process um, 
gun carry applications within 45 days, but Philadelphia is trying to get around this by forcing people to only turn in applications uh, at certain appointments. Um, and some of those appointments have stretched out to 2022. So, uh, you know, there's still still lingering effects, especially in some of these areas that have, you know, much stricter state and local uh, processes for buying or carrying a firearm. I can add to that um, here in California, you know, piggybacking off of what Stephen said, when, you know, we have a, an access line as a gun store directly into the Department of Justice, when uh, the shutdown happened, that 24-hour line or that, uh, that hotline shut down for us. And so then it turned into an email box and we couldn't get help for our customers that were caught up in a delay. Um, and even though it is a 10-day, 24-hour period, um, waiting period or background check, you have to sign an affidavit that says if the you know Department of Justice can't clear you in the 10 days, then you fall into a delay, which you have to give the state an additional amount of time up to 30 days. Um, we saw people that went beyond that 30 days, and us as a gun store didn't have any answers for those customers coming into the store of why wasn't their background being cleared? You know, why is this taking so long? We couldn't give them answers because there was no one to call. Um, and the problem with that is you have a customer who's paid a fee to the Department of Justice of $38.19 um, to the state of California, but we couldn't give them any answers. Um, we have, you know, the turnaround times have improved, but we still have, um, some of those things still happening where people get caught up in delays and even after that 30-day period expires we still can't release their legal legally purchased firearm to them and we still have no answers from you know the department of justice here on what we are to tell the customer coming into the store and you know they're afraid they're they're buying you know the new gun owners buying this for a reason they want to get out to training they want to come to our training classes so that they can you know, be a responsible gun owner, but we can't release it to them. So, you know, COVID has been a, a, a big challenge in trying to, you know, take possession of their firearms. Jacob, I want to turn to you real quickly, because we've heard specifically about a lot of these barriers um, and some of the challenges to them. Uh, but I want to talk again about your specific challenge in the state of Illinois. So we know from history, Second Amendment challenges historically have been very, very difficult to win, uh, even post Heller and post McDonald. Um, so what is unique, do you think, about your particular challenge, uh, your particular legal challenge, and what reasons do you have uh, to be optimistic about it in the face of, of, of really a, a history of this not being necessarily a winning issue? Well, one reason to be optimistic is that the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, where we are, has had some good decisions striking down other restrictions on Second Amendment rights. You know, after Chicago uh, had its handgun ban struck down by the Supreme Court in 2010, the city turned around and enacted a new law that said, well, if you want to have a handgun in Chicago, you have to uh, get training at a firing range. Oh, and also, by the way, we're banning firing ranges. And uh, that went to the Seventh Circuit. And in a decision by Judge Diane Sykes, they put an end to that pretty quickly and even had the foresight to say, by the way, don't even think about amending your zoning rules so that there's nowhere a firing range could be. You can't do that either. Uh, and so they were on top of that. They struck down Illinois' uh, statewide ban on carrying a firearm pretty soon after the McDonald decision. And now uh, we have a lot of new judges on the Seventh Circuit who we might reasonably hope would be inclined to protect Second Amendment rights. Also. Courts have generally said, that, including the Seventh Circuit, that a more severe deprivation of Second Amendment rights warrants more scrutiny than a less severe deprivation. And here we have an extreme deprivation because it's a total deprivation unless and until the state gets around to approving your application. You know, we're not talking about, well, it's just one kind of gun or one kind of ammunition or even just carrying. It's you can't do anything. So I, I would like to think that the courts would uh, take that most extreme deprivation uh, most seriously. And it helps also, of course, that the state doesn't have any excuse. It's not like the state can say that waiting more than 30 days serves some public policy. Their own law says they have to do it within 30 days. Uh, the only reason that they uh, are not doing this on time, well, one re clear reason why they're not doing it on time is because the state refuses to fund sufficiently the office that's supposed to process these things, which obviously is not 
a good justification for violating people's fundamental constitutional rights. So all those things make this a strong case. I actually have a question from the audience uh, that I think is great for piggybacking off of this since we're, we're talking about judges. And so the question is, with the assumption uh, of a possible, likely even probable, uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, what, what does that mean for the Supreme Court uh, in terms of the possibility of taking up Second Amendment cases? Um, and for those of you on the ground, what might that mean even in terms of of, um, of, of policies and, and changes uh, to what's going on 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 the ground level. Well, uh, this is an open question. <laughs> I can speak to the certainly the first part, which is that uh, it means a lot, frankly, uh, to the future of gun litigation in the United States, not just at the Supreme Court, but throughout the entire federal court system. Um, for someone like Barrett to be appointed um, in place of, of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who obviously had a, um, a very uh, restrictive view of the Second Amendment, um, and Barrett has uh, a much more expansive view, I would say, uh, is, is a fair assessment. Um, she be uh, believes in, from, from what we can tell, from she had a, a gun case uh, in, while she was an appellate court judge in 2018 um, called uh, Cantor v. Barr, which um, dealt with uh, nonviolent felons and the lifelong uh, prohibition of, of gun ownership for nonviolent felons, which she, uh, in a dissent, uh, you know, the, the, the majority of the court didn't agree with her, but in a dissent, she said um, that the prohibition was, was not in line with the Second Amendment um, as interpreted in, in the landmark Heller decision um, and the McDonald decision. And um, <clears throat> that's important on the face of it, but it's even more important uh, because she adopted what's called a uh, text history and tradition um, interpretation of Heller, which would um, essentially say that a gun law is only assumed to be constitutional if it has um, persisted for a long period of time and, and goes back to, um, or has a long tradition in the United States of, of being in place. Um, and in Barrett's uh, opinion in that case, uh, essentially the Second Amendment extends to anyone and Congress can um, remove the right, but only in certain circumstances where someone is proved to be a threat, a danger, an actual danger to society. And so that's why she found um, that nonviolent felons don't present that risk because there's a lot of felonies that you could be convicted of that don't imply that you are violent in any way. Um, and I, in that case, it was a mail fraud uh, case where a guy had defrauded uh, Medicare by selling um, unapproved uh, uh, foot, uh, you know, shoe inserts. So I guess the idea was that he shouldn't necessarily be prohibited for the rest of his life from owning guns over that conviction um, in, in Barrett's mind. And this matters because the court, while it was already five to four um, in in both uh, Heller and, and McDonald, uh, and that hadn't necessarily changed. There uh, did seem to be some he hesitance on the court's part to take new gun cases uh, clearly over the last decade or so. Um, and with, uh, you know, a sort of ideological shift that comes along with Barrett being appointed to uh, uh, Ginsburg's seat, the idea now is that they probably will take more cases on the Second Amendment and that they will establish a standard for the lower courts that they have to follow this text history and tradition uh, interpretation of Heller, uh, which they really haven't been doing much uh, in a lot of lower courts. Um, that's that's how you get, uh, at least from the gun rights point of view, um, from a lot of activist arguments, the, the, they've been using balancing tests uh, at a lot of lower court levels to uh, uphold gun laws that probably wouldn't um, withstand a text history and tradition uh, scrutiny. So uh, I think that certainly her appointment could, could have some very significant long-term um, uh, consequences when it comes to gun litigation. Excellent, thank you. Um, so we're, we're getting a number of audience questions uh, about the, the new changing demographics of gun ownership. And I think this is a great segue uh, 
to, I think, a different aspect of this conversation that I, I think we should get into. So, Geneva, I'm going to start with you for this question uh, and then open it up to the floor. So, we know that one of the primary motivations behind the 14th Amendment was a concern that southern states were depriving freedmen of the right to keep and bear arms. And so, in many respects, the Second Amendment's application to the states is a phenomenon driven by concern for black and minority gun ownership. And yet, here we are 150 years later, and the, the, the common cultural conception of your stereotypical gun owner is that it's a middle-aged white man. Um, so Geneva, what have been your personal experiences as a black woman gun owner? Is there anything you wish uh, that, that other uh, non-black gun owners knew about that? And, and sort of what are we seeing also in the changing demographics and what does that mean for the nation? Um, there definitely should be a conversation about black gun ownership and, and what that looks like. Walking into a gun store uh, as a person who's black or if you identify as African-American can be an uncomfortable experience. And we just have to be honest about that. Um, I personally experienced that 13 years ago when I decided to approach firearm ownership. I didn't grow up personally with guns, so it wasn't something that I grew up knowing um, and so the, the culture when you walk into a gun store is as if you should know the lingo. You should know what you're looking for. And if you walk into a gun store and you don't know the lingo and you don't know what to ask for and you show up with a list of questions um, and you are, you know, can be perceived to be, you know, on the liberal side of voting, you get shunned away. You get incorrect answers. Um, you know, it, it becomes a, an argument sometimes, it becomes political. Um, we've had people who've walked into the store and they've gotten into verbal fights, you know, standing in line because they didn't align in their views on presidents. And that has, to me, shouldn't have anything to do with the fundamental right to protect yourself and your family. We all share the same want of wanting to protect ourselves, to protect our families um, in the event of a civil unrest, in the event someone wants to come into your home to harm you. And we want to keep, you know, the politics off the table when you come into our store. Um, but unfortunately, that's not what really happens when you walk into a gun store as a black gun owner. You have to um, essentially, sometimes you have to put yourself to the side um, to play a different game just to get the answers that you need and, and you walk out. Um, and we took that experience, that, which was mine, because my husband grew up with firearms, so he knew everything from five years old on and up. Um, so he could walk into a gun store at 21 years old and speak the lingo. Um, for for me, when we decided to approach opening our gun store, I wanted to make sure that anyone who was a brand new gun owner, gun owner, especially if they were black, but regardless of what you look like, that you would have a safe space to ask all those questions and that they would be answered. So because that to me is the number one step to responsible gun ownership is making sure you educate them from the first step versus just putting a gun in their hand and then letting them walk out the door and they have no idea what to do with it. They have no idea how to store it. They have no idea how to really look for training. And so that is, you know, I believe the conversation needs to be that we all have the same common goal, regardless of what we look like. Um, and that being a black gun owner doesn't mean you're violent. Absolutely, a absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, and, and actually, uh, Jacob, I, I wanna turn to you real quickly because uh, I, I want you to tell us a little bit more because uh, I think this plays off well about the, the plaintiffs in, in your own case who are suing for their own right to keep and bear arms. Uh, in the case happening in, in Illinois. So can you tell us a little bit more uh, about them and where they're coming from? Yeah, our lead plaintiff in this case is a young man named DeAndre Bradley. He served in the Marines for five years before receiving an honorable discharge. And then he returned to his hometown of Chicago Heights, which is in the south suburbs of Chicago. And uh, he wanted to continue to uh, engage in his new interest in uh, firearms use and ownership, which he developed over the course of being in the military, found out he couldn't uh, because of this FOID card requirement, at least not right away, and then found himself still waiting to receive his card when uh, so much violence and looting broke out in the Chicago area. Uh, and so he's one of our plaintiffs. Uh, we have another plaintiff who's active duty in the Marine Corps as a machine gunner. And the state of Illinois says he's not allowed to have a gun in normal context to defend his own and such because he doesn't have a FOID card. 
and, and we have a couple of other individuals, and then we have a couple of organizations uh, dedicated to gun rights on behalf of their members. And those organizations are gonna be important because of course the state can give anybody you name their card and then you say they don't have a problem anymore. But constantly they're getting inquiries at these organizations from people in all walks of life who are experiencing this and are frustrated over it. And uh, so we're going to keep identifying more people like that, keep telling the stories of people like that. And of course, so many of these people uh, as first time gun owners are people living in places where the need to defend yourself is real, where they perceive this around them and don't want to be um, left to depend on police who, for a variety of reasons, might or might not be there uh, when they need them. In fact, one of the things DeAndre told us repeatedly was he had done a little reading and had learned that the uh, Supreme Court has said you don't have a right for the police to defend your lives. And that means, well, ultimately, it has to come down to you to be able to defend your life. And uh, he was highly outraged that the state of Illinois would stand in his way as it did. Jacob, you, you brought up a, a great uh, caveat there, which is, you know, people who are first time gun owners coming in and, and uh, you know, wanting to get that training or having that training. Um, and we've fortunately gotten a, a number of audience questions on that that I think I'm going to combine into one general question, mostly at you, Geneva, and, and, um, and you, Stephen. Um, what are we seeing with these first-time gun owners and their willingness uh, and desire to get training? What are some of the barriers that are standing in their way? Um, and are they, you know, some uh, gun control advocates would insinuate, are they dangerous to public safety uh, until such time as they are expert marks? I can step in for that because not only are we a gun store, um, my husband and I train. And before you walk out of that gun store, that discussion, before you walk out of our gun store, the discussion is, hey, we have range days two to three times a month. We would love for you to come out and train with us. Um, and that starts, we go from beginners all the way up to tactical practical is what Jonathan calls it. Um, and we have a whole host of classes here from handgun cleaning, which is important to, you know, knowing how to use that firearm. I am a big proponent that you definitely need training. Um, you know, having just the gun is just a paperweight. It's dangerous just to have that and you don't go out and get the training to know how to use it because, you know, you have seconds when you have to protect yourself, especially here in California. It, you know, when you use deadly force, it's a last resort, which means you have seconds to make a decision and you won't clearly know if you are making the right decision unless you get the training and you continue to train. It's just like when you you get behind the wheel of a car as a teenager, you get that practice. And you know, my dad, he made me practice driving over and over and over. You know, I believe the same is true with that firearm. Um, I can tell you, you know, statistically our range days prior to COVID, you know, we would, it would be kind of, you just show up, you know, people didn't pre-register. They just kind of showed up. Yes, we would have 20 participants. And now we're seeing our range days where we have 70 spots open sell out in a matter of 30 minutes. So their demand for training is there. We just, we're not just seeing people going out and buying guns and then going home. I'm sure there is a percentage of people doing that, but I can assure you that we have a lot of beginners that are seeking training. We have a lot of trainers that are coming, you know, I talked with the range that we contract with and they said they're getting a lot of phone calls from trainers who retired because people weren't coming out to train. And now all of a sudden they're coming out and they're willing to offer their services. So the gun range is packed. Um, you know, if you look at the statistics on uh, gun sales, talk to the gun ranges. They There's lines to get into the gun range as well. So people definitely are practicing. Yeah, and I, I would add, uh, you know, myself as a fellow certified um, firearms instructor that, uh, that while certainly guns are not toys um, and that there are responsibilities that come along with your rights, um, namely the responsibility to uh, handle firearms safely, to know how to do that. Um, it, is, it is thankfully uh, fairly um, easy to learn. Um, and uh, I do think that a lot of first time buyers that I've spoken with for stories or even in my personal life are eager to learn. Uh, they're eager, eager to get training. Um, and at the very least have um, utilized online resources that have been made available by, you know, the National Rifle Association and other organizations. Um, a lot of YouTube 
um, uh, trainers as well have put out good guides on on basic gun safety. Um, you know, and as long as you know the, the three gun safety rules, you're, you're you're off to a good start. You know, always keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to fire. Um, always keep the gun pointed in a safe direction, so not at anything you don't want to shoot. And uh, always treat every gun as though it's loaded. Uh, you know, or never assume a gun is unloaded when you're handling it. But um, you know, as long as you have that base, uh, you, you uh, are at least able to operate safely with your firearm um, and then on top of that it's important to add additional training on how to properly uh, use your firearm how to shoot it accurately um, and and how to maintain it and and uh, steps like that as well um, but luckily there uh, are a lot of good resources that people have available to them even in an environment where we're you know social distancing and taking precautions uh, to slow the spread of the virus um, but that that did certainly has had an impact um, on the availability of, of classes, especially early on for new gun owners, um, because a lot of places weren't allowed to do, you know, classes because they involve groups of people. Um, I think since, you know, the early onset of the the, the pandemic and the, the shutdowns that we saw there, there have been, uh, you know, the, those standards have been loosened a bit and we've had seen more and more. Uh, classes made available to people um, and that they've been very well attended across the country from uh, what I've seen and and probably will be for a long time to come, I'd imagine. I mean, just look at how hard it is to still buy ammunition today, uh, let alone firearms. I mean, people are using that um, in these these training classes. I'm sure some some of it is stockpiling, but but uh, you know, a lot of it is just that there's a lot more people buying ammunition now, uh, and it takes several hundred rounds usually when you go to a range for for training. So uh, I think that's that's part of what's driving the the shortage in ammunition that we're, we're still seeing today. Jacob, I actually have a question from the audience uh, specifically directed at you uh, regarding gun control laws generally in Illinois. Um, so the, the question is generally, you know, what should we know about the history of gun control in Illinois uh, and, and how it stacks up against both the Second Amendment and the laws of other states? Uh, in other words, is this this Ford card fiasco par for the course in Illinois or is it some unique outlier? Yeah, well, of course, Illinois and especially Chicago are notorious for disrespecting Second Amendment rights. In fact, in 1981, in Chicago suburb, Morton Grove was the first municipality anywhere to ban handguns uh, in the United States. And then in 1982, Chicago enacted its own ban on handguns, which of course the Supreme Court eventually struck down in McDonald versus Chicago in 2010. And as I mentioned, the city tried to uh, keep it going even after that, uh, but fortunately were stopped. Illinois had a total ban on carrying um, loaded and even unloaded uh, in large part firearms with uh, some narrow exceptions. So uh, it's been incredibly hostile to First Amendment, or excuse me, Second Amendment rights. And uh, now it seems to be the big one that's left is this Floyd card requirement. So we're hoping we can at least get them to apply that in a more reasonable way. Of course, we'd like to ultimately see the requirement itself struck down too. And then Illinois will have pretty good gun freedom uh, compared to other states. Yeah, and I would just add real quick, uh, Illinois has, most of that progress has been made through the courts because the legislature has not gotten much more friendly towards gun owners there. They've even passed recently a uh, an extra uh, state level regulatory body for gun dealers on top of the one that already exists at the federal level. So uh, they're still trying to make it more difficult for people to sell guns in, the, in Illinois than it already is. Got a uh, another question from the audience uh, directed uh, toward the panel generally. What are some practical steps that normal civilians can take to encourage lawmakers in liberal states like New York or California, or even just gun restrictor states like Illinois to ease restrictions on gun ownership? I'll step in and say, um, from what I've been seeing down here, you know, in, in the store is, you know, I know the presidential election is, is major, it's important, um, but it's also important to read the local, um, you know, referenda that's on the ballot. So a lot of things that were passed into law, you know, they they get packaged in and people vote them, you know, in to law. There's a micro stamping law. People had no idea that was voted in many, many years ago. 
um, you know, the ammo uh, restriction law, it was sold a different way than what it really was. And so people heard one thing, oh, there's this background check for am ammunition sales. And then you get down to the, the guts of the law and that's not really what's happening. And so I think people need to be more educated on what, when they vote locally, um, in their own areas on what exactly they're voting for and not just, you know, rely on a 30 second commercial bit or, you know, definitely open up, do your research, read the pros, read the cons and really understand what it is you're voting, you know, locally on. Um, and so I think a lot of times what happens, especially for the new gun owners is, yes, we pay attention to the presidential election, but then they forget about midterm. They forget about the measurements on, you know, and, and that just kind of falls by the wayside. And a lot of times that's how a lot of these things get packaged and passed because people are not paying attention at that level. Um, I, would, I would also say that uh, in places like New York or California or Illinois, uh, New Jersey, you know, some of the areas where it's, uh, you know, democratically controlled and likely to be for a long time coming is that you have to be pragmatic um, in your approach um, and try to deal with the people who are in office. Um, do your best to make them understand your point of view on the legislation that they're, that they're uh, you know, either for or against and telling them why you think they should vote one way or the other and, and uh, you know, work within the system that you have available to you. Um, to try and make improvements the best that you can. Um, <clears throat> and ultimately voting is is going to determine obviously who, who you're speaking with, but even if you don't get the representative that you want, um, oftentimes they can be swayed by um, voter uh, feedback, you know, uh, especially if it's particularly intense, like you saw here in Virginia um, over the last year, uh, there was the the Democrats won control of every um, house, uh, both houses and the the governorship here in Virginia, and were going to pass um, significant gun control laws, and they did pass most of those, but they did not pass all of them, likely because of the um, the Second Amendment sanctuary movement that took hold here, um, because at the there were just so many people who came out to express their um, uh, opposition to the gun control packages and it ended up preventing the probably the most severe law from going into place which would have been a assault weapons ban and actually confiscation um uh, as it was proposed and so um it you know i think it's clear that even when you know a party one party has control of the entire state government uh they can still be influenced on specific issues if you um have enough people enough voters who speak up about it. And it looks like this is gonna be our final audience question here, again, just broadly for the panel. With an increase in left-leaning individuals purchasing firearms, do you think politicians will begin to perceive Second Amendment rights as a bipartisan issue? Uh, I mean, I can speak to that if you want me to. Um, <clears throat> uh, I can start us off, but uh, uh, yes, I think that is a key point about the political impact of these new gun owners. If they, if a significant number of them, it doesn't have to be the whole seven and a half million or, or however many there really are, because these are obviously just estimates we're dealing with here, um, rough estimates, but if a significant portion of people become gun voters or make that an issue that's important to them, even if they're um, liberals or Democrats or, or people that are not traditionally associated in our political system with uh, gun rights advocates, uh, even if just a uh, some percentage of them, 30%, become politically active on that point, it could have a serious impact on the political conversation inside of the Republican Party, but also the Democratic Party. Um, and you could see uh, certainly more of those sort of uh, blue dog Democrats that, that you know, were famous years ago um, for their opposition to things like gun control. Um, certainly you could see a resurgence in that and and that would have a significant impact, I think, on the uh, national level, but also at the state level, probably even more importantly, um, on gun policies that are, are 
debated going forward because as things stand now, uh, the, the Democratic Party has moved significantly to the left um, in the last 10 years or so on the issue of gun control. And if they have um, backlash by their own voters because a lot of them have become gun owners and don't agree with stricter gun policies, that could certainly have a, a, a large impact down the line. Maybe it doesn't happen immediately, maybe not in the next three weeks uh, here as we look to this election, but uh, especially with all the other things that are going on uh, that are sort of taking attention away from guns at this point. Uh, but down the line, the next, the next election, the next four or five elections. And I agree. Um, I think it's too soon to tell what the shift is going to look like. Um, but I can tell you from what we're hearing and seeing is even with the increase of gun sales, even in the state of California, our governor has still pushed through within the last couple of weeks, um, more gun control measures. Um, and that has actually caused an additional increase in gun sales. Um, so those new gun owners are now paying attention because they're seeing um, that, hey, this is gonna become even more restrictive maybe next year. Um, so I, again, it's too soon to tell, but I believe that it, it will cause uh, a shift. Uh, so it's just gonna be a, a yes, no, and Jacob, I'd still love to get your thoughts. Um, a final question for all three of you, yes or no, are we seeing a year of Second Amendment resurgence? Is the Second Amendment striking back? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you to the panelists. Uh, thank you to the audience. Thank you to all of the organizers of this event. I think this was a phenomenal discussion on a very important topic. Uh, hopefully, we will have it up uh, for, for people to watch again and again and again. Um, again, there is also a, a PDF handout. Be sure to look at that. Uh, it'll give you more information about what our, uh, our panelists are, are saying, doing, and hearing about the Second Amendment. Uh, and with that, again, thank you for joining us. And thank you again uh, for helping make this the year where the Second Amendment is striking back.